Welcome to another edition of Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host and the editor of thegrayzone.com, Max Blumenthal. This week, we'll return to the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, where we cover the devastating defeat suffered by Ukrainian forces after some 60 to 70,000 casualties in the city of Bakhmut and what it means for the future of the war, as well as a neo-Nazi invasion of the Russian Federation by Russian opposition forces backed by the Ukrainian government and armed with U.S. weapons. A pretty uncomfortable scenario for a Biden administration that pronounces white supremacy as the worst terrorist threat to the United States. But first, we turn to an event that I covered with my close colleague at the Gray Zone, Anya Parampil, in Washington, D.C., which featured USAID director Samantha Power, members of Ukraine's government, and top corporate executives promoting a dystopian application called DIA, which Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky promotes as the state in a smartphone. This app not only tracks your vaccination status, holds your digital ID, performs dozens of government functions, it also allows you to snitch on your neighbor if you believe they happen to be a Russian collaborator. And we've seen what happens to accused Russian collaborators in Ukraine today. It's not a pretty picture. This app will be exported to countries like Zambia and Colombia with the help of USAID. So let's take a listen to my discussion about this disturbing event in Washington, D.C. with Anya Parampil. Anya Parampil and I were in attendance at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on May 23rd, where USAID director Samantha Power rolled out the DIA app before hundreds of awestruck spectators alongside Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation, Mikhailo Fedorov, hosted by tech journalist Kara Swisher and featuring the executive chairman of Visa and the head of the Eurasia Foundation. This app, known as DIA, D-I-I-A, has been promoted by Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky as a state within a smartphone, and it supposedly provides something like 18 fundamental government services, and and along with 120 other functions. Um, and here I asked Oksana Markarova, the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., about whether this whole event was designed to actually use the ravages of Ukraine and the Ukrainian proxy war to advance the fourth and to accelerate the fourth industrial revolution and this uh, dystopian digital prison that is coming into effect with digital IDs, digital passports, and a total panopticon style surveillance. So watch this exchange.
as we're waiting for it, I'm sure remembering I saw Samantha Power on a, in person a year or so a, a year ago in Brooklyn, and uh, I froze up and I was I was gonna I was trying to think of a question, but but then she got into a car and she went away. So anyway, I, I actually uh, sorry, uh, we'll we'll fix that in post. I actually forgot to share that clip, so. Um. Here's the interview. This event was about profiting off of war, turning Ukraine into a laboratory, the ruins of Ukraine into a laboratory for the fourth industrial revolution. You're absolutely um, getting wrong, Ukrainians all in a digital. No, you're not interested in the, in yeah, the yeah, answer, please. And can you tell me why my my colleague Anya Karpov was on a kill your interior ministry maintains a kill list of journalists, and my partner here, Anya Parnfield, is on it. Unlike uh, in Ukraine, you can't kill and ban your opposition here. Our Nazis actually have to hide behind the government, not serve in the government. That was cold. Uh, <laughs> actually one point I wanted to, I, I didn't, this, this guy is, uh, the head of, uh, I figured out who he was. He's the head of something called digital democracy that state department backs. But if you look right here, maybe it's a little before we can see this guy right here. I totally missed him. That's Alexander Vindman. Oh, there's I Vindman. I'd, I wish I had known he was there. Mm. Um, but you know, that's a person who looks like him. Vindman. Yeah. That, no, that is him for sure. Yeah, that's Vinman. Yeah, it's Vinman. Stand, every everybody, stand for Vinman. Remember when Biden did that at the <laughs> yeah. in the debates? Like, who the hell is Vinman? Yeah. So, so Anya, what did you make of this event uh, and that exchange? Um, give us your. Well, I think it explained why the European, Western European, and United States governments are so wedded to the Ukraine war and they're willing to throw untold billions worth of dollars at what is obviously a military quagmire at this point, something that most people would have understood was never going to be resolved militarily unless they were really going to risk nuclear war with Russia, which apparently they're willing to do. Because this isn't really about a military victory. This isn't necessarily just a war that is fought on the battlefield at this point. What this event showed is how the West and pretty much through USAID, because what USAID is, is the front that gives cover to the private public partnership of Western imperial policy. So USAID goes in to countries and gives them US taxpayer money. Their slogan is actually from the American people, I think. I saw that for the first time at this event because it was under their logo. I was like, I don't even think the American people know that they're giving people anything through USAID. But so USAID gives the US taxpayer money to nominally non-government NGOs in foreign countries, or in some cases, just directly to the government. And then in, in a lot of cases, what that means is that those funds have to then directly be used in order to buy Western technology. Or, I mean, in Ukraine's case, Samantha Power actually just held a conference in in Ukraine, in Kiev, with, with the leaders of Western tech and finance, 
And she was basically saying Ukraine is going through a really hard time right now, but it's all going to pay off when we get the future that we're planning here. And, and you can see that future through the DIA app and through everything they discussed at, at, at this event. And by the way, the CEO or high level figures from BlackRock and Visa and all the major corporate vultures were in Kiev for that conference. So it's a little bit disgusting to think that these people are already there ready uh, to prey on the carcass of Ukraine while their men of Ukraine are still dying basically for nothing at this point. So it's really twisted. And this app and the event showed that, and they said it explicitly, that they they plan to make Ukraine into a vision of the future of what they, they want for all of us, which is remote work and learning, Tech innovation is basically the main industry. So you just get all these investments from financial institutions to create a bunch of technology that no one really needs. Um, <clears throat> they said Ukraine will be the first cashless society and be reliant on a central bank digital currency by 2030. And I mean, we can play the full clip of that. I think Max can if he wants. But basically, as as Max described, all of this falls under the category of what the Davos elite describe as the fourth industrial revolution and what they see as the future that we all should live under, including here in the United States. They think we should be living in 15 minute cities where we can access everything we need and only be plugged into some electrical grid. We don't really get gas cars anymore. They never talk about necessarily how they're going to live, Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab, but they definitely are explicitly telling us that they don't expect us to own anything, definitely not have homes or even really families in the future. And that is what they are rolling out and testing already in Ukraine. They had began talking about this app in 2019 and they rolled it out as a result of the war and something else. Well, it was actually rolled out on you before the war and we'll play the clip. But by people, these I don't think people were using it on the same. People were using it, but not on the same no. scale, but it was first used with visa technology uh, to incent as uh, visas chairman, Al Kelly said at the event in order to pay, basically pay Ukrainians to take the MRNA COVID vaccine. Uh, yeah, we don't even really know where they got do. that money, by the and way. So the question is, were U.S. taxpayers and EU taxpayers basically being having their money raked out of their pockets to bribe Ukrainians to take uh, experimental COVID injections? But, uh, you know, just yeah, the, the, the whole point that you're making here is that the fourth industrial revolution is being tested in a laboratory where citizens have the least power. And then it's being exported to other countries where citizens have little power to push back, as they announced at this event. Zambia and Colombia are going to be uh, trying the DIA app, as well as Zanzibar. But let's look at, and when we Not talk the about- Not DIA app, but their own USAID partnership to create a similar app. I think DIA is just Ukraine, but- But we can look at how this app is being used actually uh, to pit citizens against each other. And as a literal weapon, as Samantha Power said, here's a um, some of, something I, I filmed that was so shocking during this presentation. 
which shows how the app is actually being used, is encourages people to snitch in Ukraine on their neighbors. Four bonds aimed at rebuilding the liberated and soon to be deoccupied Ukrainian cities. State mortgage, military, medics, teachers, and scientists can apply for the state mortgage right in the app. E-Enemy, a chatbot that helps any citizen safely transfer info about the location of Russian troops, names of collaborators, and enemy movements to the armed forces. About the location of Russian troops, time. names of collaborators, and enemy movements to the armed forces. Numerous attacks of Russian army destroyed a number of TV towers. To provide Ukrainians with uninterrupted access to information, we launched DIA Radio and DIA TV, so that even under blackouts, millions could feel present. And added the in-app army of drones game to help Ukrainians both distract and donate to the common purpose. Has the enemy launched cyber attacks on Ukraine? Of course they have, and they failed. Even when the world is falling apart, our main task is to protect the people. Together, we can build a stronger one. So uh, we've seen we've all, we've seen the video of accused collaborators being thrown in mass graves by members of the Azov Battalion. We've seen mayors killed who are accused of being collaborators in Ukraine. We've seen Ukrainian officials cheer on these assassinations. And we've seen all of the major political opposition parties in Ukraine be banned uh, with its- Well, the their, Ukrainian their government banned them, not just, they weren't just being banned. Like somebody banned them, <laughs> the Ukrainian government that we fund and pay for. Band then. Right. So this app takes on a very dark quality in and, and, and while you're bored, uh, if you're bored at all, you can play the army of drones game. <laughs> you can pretend to be a drone going to assassinate Putin. They, brought to you by Visa and Google. It, they called it the army of drones because as we've covered at the gray zone with Alex Rubenstein just recently, the army of drones is an official initiative that the Ukrainian government has in place right now where if you, you can actually pull up the web, web page and maybe show people Max or pull up Alex's article, the Ukrainian government is openly fundraising in order to purchase drones. And they even ask people or foreign governments to donate actual drones. They call them dronations instead of donations on the website. They enlisted actor Mark Hamlin from the Star Wars. Mark, ha Mark Hamill. Hamill, yeah. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, to be well, honest. Well, he's kind of like, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But well, but anyway, so they, they are trying to, and they call this their Army of Drones campaign. And these are the drones that we can suspect were used not only in the attack on the Kremlin earlier this month, but also in an earlier assassination attempt on Putin, on, on Russian President Vladimir Putin's life. And there have been hundreds of incursions into Russian territory over the, over the border there with Ukraine of these drones, according to Russia. And you know, the BBC has done articles pumping up this army of drones campaign. There, there's no secret that it's going on, but then they kind of are coy when an actual attack takes place in Russia and pretend like, oh, it's a false flag from Putin. So I think a lot of people are evolved enough to see what's going on there. And yeah, and back they, to the DIA app, I mean, you, they're saying 
that the drone strikes, you can essentially call in a drone strike by reporting enemy locations to the Ukrainian military with this app in which you also maintain your uh, vaccination status, your ID card and your banking and your and your and your banking info and that Visa itself maintains the server. I believe also that under digital or remote education that students would I imagine also be engaging with their schooling through Dia, it's pretty much just supposed to be, they sell it as convenience, just like they did during COVID-19. All these people that were like, oh, I wish that we could just have a digital ID so that it would be so easy to go through airports. That's how they get you to buy into the, basically the digital digitization of everything that makes us human, everything that is a part of our daily life, they are openly saying they just want to put it in one app. They don't even want you to have cash anymore. And, and then you're, it's like such a great, cool thing. You're not supposed to really question it or have any concerns about digital surveillance whatsoever. And the last point that I would just make on in that regard is that as they were pumping up this app and giving our, their spiel and pitch at, the event we attended and they said they were boasting of how the digital ID made it very easy to track citizens and ease their travel, I think is how they spun it. But then I was thinking, wait, in a country that is conscripting all of its men, to fight in a war, regardless of whether or not they actually believe in it or want to sacrifice their lives on, like, because they know that's what they're going to do if they get sent to war. What does that mean if they can control and monitor every citizen through their phone that way? And that, you know, you can't just cross over a border with your passport anymore. You're required to pass with this phone that is your ID. I mean, it seems like it would really assist in the Ukrainian government's effort to force every single male in the country to die on the front line. Or to be killed because they're suspected collaborators. But we've all seen the video or we've reported on these videos of young or military age Ukrainian men being rounded up and press ganged on the street, thrown into vans and taken to the front lines, taken to Bakhmut. Uh, If you sign up for the DIA app, presumably you're using geolocation. And while Mikhailo Fedorov, the young 32-year-old Yale-trained Minister of Digital Transformation who previously engaged in a $60 million partnership with the crypto scam known as FTX, said from the stage at Warner Theater, acclaimed from the stage, all the data that it does not store your data. But I don't believe that when it's not on a blockchain and it's being maintained by Google and Visa and USAID put up all the money for it. Um, and then we also have the as the um, reality of DIA as it relates to the US taxpayer. Okay, $25 million was put up by USAID for DIA. But as Samantha Power, the director of USAID, claimed, were it not for DIA, $15 billion of our money would not have gone to Ukraine to literally pay 
public workers. I mean, this was a shocking comment that Samantha Power volunteered. She went out of her way to make this statement. One of the things that Congress has given USAID uh, since this full-scale invasion began is an unprecedented amount of money mm -hmm. in direct budget support, which sounds kind of obvious. Of course, we would do that. We want to stand with Ukraine, but it's totally unprecedented, these, this kind of scale of investment. And we're talking in, along the lines investment. of $15 billion in, in a sense, cash to the Ukrainian government, mm -hmm. which was famously corrupt mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in past years and still has work, as you noted, to do on corruption today. I don't know if we could have gotten that money out of Congress, if not for DIA. Mm -hmm. Because what DIA allows us to do is that direct budget support goes, yes, to the Ukrainian government, but then it goes to pay teachers, to pay healthcare workers, to pay first responders. And there's a digital trail. It's not you know, some official deciding this or that. It actually is going directly into the bank accounts in a manner that just, it would have been untraceable in a, in a, in a prior regime. So, well, so she's saying it's traceable. Uh, the whole point is it's traceable. So they don't have privacy, but we're paying, we're directly paying teachers in Ukraine while teachers in, in LA just had to go on strike for better wages. We're paying healthcare workers, Anya. It was very tricky marketing that she delivered there because obviously the Ukrainian government is so corrupt that not even Samantha Power or anybody else in Washington can deny that corruption was a major issue in the country over the last several years. And so they part of how they're branding the DIA app is that it will combat corruption by making it impossible if it's all if all exchanges and all government contracts and all documents and any permit that you need to get to build or anything is centralized in this app controlled or under the authority of the government in Kiev, then corruption is impossible because the bureaucrats and people in charge can monitor what's going on. That doesn't actually help you. If the state is the mafia that's responsible for the corruption, the Ukrainian state is not actually some civic institution that is there representing the interests of the Ukrainian people according to a social contract or sense of, of, of government obligation. It is made up of the very financial elite, pretty much, that have ties to the West and who are driving this war and had also pillaged the country ever since 2014 and through the privatization schemes and everything that came in after the Maidan coup. Those, those are the people responsible for the corruption. I mean, Zelensky, we all know he's just an actor. He's just a comedian. His main funder Kolomoisky is the Ukrainian banker who, I mean, people don't really maybe understand this. What The reason Kolomoisky is so hated in Ukraine is because he was the overseeing the, the bank in Ukraine where average Ukrainians had stored their money for years. And then one day it just didn't, it just didn't exist. And people talk about that maybe happening here in the United States or in Europe sometime soon, but it's, it's, it's already something that they've shown can happen in Ukraine, then after everybody was suddenly poor 
and impoverished. Then they came in with this liberalization scheme and agenda promising them work through Western investment and construction, which they're going to do also after, or they would like to after this war is over and Ukraine's destroyed. Yeah, the, the partnership with BlackRock. Right. But if, if, if Kolomoisky is behind the, uh, the government, essentially, people know that. He's literally a governor of Dnipro, of one of the major, one of the major provinces in Ukraine. But if that's your government, then how how is having a central a centralized app where everything is managed by that government actually going to stop corruption? What it's really doing is taking away the sovereignty of the people and selling it to them. Can Well, they don't really have a choice in Ukraine, really. But they are at least branding it to us as, oh, the Ukrainians need this convenience and it's going to protect them from civic corruption. And they would like to convince us in the West also that accepting such an app would do the same. But we also know that our government is run by the mafia that is screwing all of us anyway. So they were complaining at that event. Kara Swisher, the head, uh, editor in chief of New York Magazine, was complaining that Americans specifically would never accept something like this, which I hope is true. But COVID did tell us, or at least told me that, I can never be so sure because when people get these existential fear senses in their, their bodies, they might agree to anything. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, here is Kara Swisher introducing Zelensky's presentation of DIA, which hammers home the point that the Davos-centric fourth industrial revolution arrived in Ukraine with Zelensky's election, he was advised by so many American advisors, including the now infamous Nina Jankowitz. Um, so here's journalistic gun for hire, Kara Swither, Swisher, introducing Zelensky. So without further ado, uh, first a video from President Zelensky. Tvorinja, Jobsa, Apple, iPhone. It's a yoho serce, i vono vjecja, vjecja s kožnem vibro pičas zvinka, abo pičas SMS. I mean, it's interesting here, uh, just to cut in, he's first of all, he's, he's humanizing the iPhone and describing it as kind of the heartbeat of a nation because it beats with every vibration. This is prior to 2022. Zelensky was speaking at the Stanford Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, which is a major spook fest. It's where Obama announced the Obama Foundation's uh, counter disinformation plan. Avnyomu. Наше українське творіння держава у смартфоні. Мільйони українців щоденно користуються нашим державним сервісом. Leader of цифровізації публічних послуг і соціальних відносин. Це прямий наслідок того, на що ми здатні сміливість і освіта, здатність боротися за свої інтереси, знайти найзручніший шлях. So you get the point. Um, but this also really highlights what Zelensky was about. Again, 
many many of those presentations that Zelensky was making about Dia took place before the war. Ukraine was always with his election intended to be uh, engine or hub or uh, a hub of the Great Reset. Anya, anything else to add about the Dia event in Washington or your, your thoughts on where this is going? I don't think it's going anywhere positive for Ukraine. It, it seems, and this is what I said in, in my tweet about the event, that Ukraine has already been sacrificed on the altar of Western finance and technology. They are not fighting this war in Ukraine because they believe Ukraine can win. I mean, the West, the United Kingdom, the United States, and its subservient European allies is waging this war, not because they believe Ukraine can win militarily, but because they believe Ukraine can be destroyed. And that then they will have the chance to rebuild it according to their vision of the future, which is what they, they want to ultimately bring to us. And these are... This is according to the statements that they make themselves. So we should look at Ukraine immediately as a tragedy that is a human tragedy and something that the only conversation we should be having about it is to say that there needs to be a peace and a negotiated solution. In the entire two hours that these people spoke in Washington, D.C., there was not one mention of how to actually stop the death and destruction in Ukraine. So that should tell you already a lot about how these people think. And aside from the immediate demand that we should all have, which is to end this war, end the suffering of more than anyone, the Ukrainian people, that would be real Ukraine solidarity. But then after that, we should step back and consider what does everything that's going on in Ukraine tell us about what could become our own future or what the people running our countries and really the Western transatlantic elite, what their agenda is for all of us. And are we poised to actually confront it? Do we even totally understand it? I think the COVID experience helped many of us, including I think you and me, Max, and, and a lot of our friends understand the full scope of uh, this agenda. It's not just the CIA doing regime change wars. That's one part of a global agenda that our elite have. And they're going to turn this on us. They're going to try and convince you and me and everybody else that we should have a DS style app and maybe it will save us from climate change. I think that's the one existential fear that they have already said pretty much they will rely on to unveil the fourth industrial revolution to the West. But we need to be vigilant and very critical of what's going on, because I don't know how much time we have to really oppose it, especially when we consider all the rapid advancements going on in AI technology and just what they they openly say and the right. fact that they're willing to march us to nuclear war. So we should draw lessons from this about what it means for our own societies. Great point. I mean, we're talking about disaster capitalism. 
in Ukraine being export and and but the innovations being exported around the world in the era of AI and Elon Musk who has been in the past a supporter of transhumanism and AI has actually said there needs to be a pause on AI technology because of the danger that it poses to humanity. Kara Swisher even came out and joked that AI would destroy humanity. But then you have Eric Schmidt in charge of the Pentagon's fourth offset, uh, Eric Schmidt of Google, declaring that, no, we have to keep AI full steam ahead because of the great power competition with China. So Anya is absolutely right. I think this is the key challenge of our time and it's happening against the tableau of empire. You've been listening to my discussion with the Gray Zone's Anya Parampil about the dystopian DIA app that was introduced by USAID in cooperation with the Ukrainian government. We turn back to Ukraine for my conversation with the Gray Zone's Aaron Mate about a neo-Nazi invasion of the Russian Federation by Russian opposition forces backed by the Ukrainian government and armed by a U.S. administration that claims that white supremacy is the greatest threat to the American homeland. We'll also discuss the defeat of the Ukrainian army in Bakhmut at the cost of some 65,000 soldiers and what it means for the future of the proxy war. Take a listen. Um, but Aaron, I think we should, we should start with the, the invasion of Russia. <laughs> yeah, they told us this wasn't going to happen. They told us this wasn't going to happen. There wasn't going to be cross-border incursions uh, with U.S. weaponry from Ukraine into Russia. But like everything else, like every other red line that's been crossed, this one, you can check this one off the list too. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's start this segment on a cross-border raid in Russia by showing you how the Financial Times, fa I think, factually reported it and how this differed from a lot of the spin from U.S. media, which attempted to portray this as some kind of Russian civil war. Here's the Financial Times. Militias used U.S. armored vehicles in attack over Russian border. Far-right militias who stormed a Russian border Russian region bordering Ukraine this week used U.S.-made tactical vehicles in the attack, raising questions over Kyiv's support for Ukraine-based ex Russian extremist groups. Ukraine has denied direct involvement in the raid on Monday, but one military official acknowledged cooperating with the nationalist groups who on Monday entered Russian territory to liberate a village. And the head of this Russian volunteer corps, we'll show some photos of them a little later, told the Financial Times that his fighters assaulting the Belgorod region, the border region in Russia, were in possession of American-made vehicles. These included at least two M1224 Max Pro armored vehicles. Those are the MRAPs that you commonly see in U.S. convoys. And several Humvees, he said, while declining to disclose how they were obtained. And uh, these images were all over the place. For that, that piece, by the way, was authored by Christopher Miller, who used to be the at the U.S. government publication Radio Free Liberty Radio Europe. Um, it's interesting how they feed them into international 
publications that are supposedly independent of government influence. Um, and he referred to the Russian Volunteer Corps as far right fighters, but this is actually a banned group inside Russia that is neo Nazi. And these are neo Nazi organization. This is a neo Nazi organization. And uh, one of the leaders of this group was asked about being a neo-Nazi by the international press. After this failed border raid, we should point out that it was a completely failed raid in which everyone involved was either captured or killed or forced to flee. And here he's asked about it. Do you describe yourself as a neo-Nazi? Do you mind being described as a neo-Nazi? I don't. I don't think it's an insult. I don't care about that. I mean, what can I do about it? Do you that? mind you being are, described as a neo-Nazi? So you can call me pedophile. You can call me neo-Nazi. You can call me whatever you want. What can I do against it? You can call me a pedophile. You can call me a neo-Nazi. You can call me whatever you want. Well, you can see that flag behind him is a ultra-nationalist or neo-Nazi flag. And many of the figures involved in the leadership of this organization were in neo-Nazi circles in Russia before they got weaponized by the Ukrainian military to carry out these kind of attacks, which clearly in my view and in the view of so many others who are observing this closely, was partly designed to distract from the catastrophic Ukrainian def defeat in Bakhmut, which Zelensky had described before US Congress as Ukraine's Battle of Saratoga. So and it successfully did that in some senses. The U.S. media was much, you know, turned its attention to this. But then we have the issue of U.S. weapons going to neo-Nazi groups backed by the Ukrainian military, as Financial Times acknowledged, Aaron. Yeah, and let me show you how the New York Times reported this. Uh, they pointed out this about the raid. They said, um, already the Kremlin has said that the raiders abandoned American-made military vehicles inside Russia, and Moscow can use the far-right histories of some of the raiders to bolster its largely false claim to be fighting Nazis in Ukraine. I had never seen this verbiage before. <laughs> so before I was told that Russia's claim to be fighting Nazis is false, right? It's Russian propaganda. Now, according to the Times, it's largely false. So the question becomes, like, how large is that falsehood and what part of the claim to be fighting Nazis is true? Like, can we get a percentage from The New York Times? I think that would be helpful uh, because how could something be largely false? It's just it's a strange way to put it. Largely like, false, but there is some truth to it. <laughs> uh, we just won't say how much truth there is, but it's more false than true. More false than true. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's more people inside. Basically, there, there's more people inside Ukraine who are not, not Nazis than are Nazis. Fair enough. And that's what we've always said. But the point is, there are Nazis. <laughs> and they do have major influence. And they do uh, carry out operations like this. And um, it's just interesting that this is how the New York Times copes with that. Well, here's some more of the, the largely non-Nazi Russian Volunteer Corps. This is just a look at who they are. This look like are they just far right or
Потому что победа Российской Федерации в этой войне будет означать торжество преступного режима и гибель русского народа. Мы на своей земле, в своем родном городе. Мы здесь, чтобы спасти... So, I mean, you have guys that, that look like... The Russian version of Al-Qaeda or ISIS talking about carrying out regime change in Russia, attacking their own government, and a separatist project, and they're waving the flag of football ultras. In other words, they're football hooligans. They're saying that we draw from the ranks of football hooligans to fill the Russian volunteer corps. And this is... Uh, This is who is getting U.S. weapons. I mean, we're not talking just about small arms. We're talking about heavy weapons, MRAPs, Humvees. They're getting them from the Ukrainian military. And uh, Denis Nikotin, who is the leader of the Russian Volunteer Corps, told the Financial Times, well, he refused to tell the Financial Times how he got those weapons. But it's the same thing we saw on the Syrian battlefield, where the FSA, this fake moderate rebel group, was created in order by the CIA with supposedly moderate leadership who had supposedly been trained in moderation to take over and cause a democratic transition. And they all just became a weapons farm for al-Qaeda and ISIS. And we eventually saw Jabhat al-Nusra carrying U.S. tow missiles. BGM tow missiles built by Raytheon into the field. Uh, we saw it again and again and again, and U.S. media always would show the pictures, but they didn't seem troubled by the fact that the organization responsible for 9-11 was being armed by the U.S., and it's the same with these neo-Nazis. Joe Biden at Howard University's commencement address, the most prestigious historically black college in the U.S., declared white supremacy to be the number one terror threat in the United States. And here we are providing neo-Nazis with not just tow missiles or small arms, but MRAPs, Humvees. And, yeah. And going back to Syria for a second, one of the reasons why the U.S. Uh, classified its program in Syria as covert is In the words of one Obama administration official, a senior administration official, this is from the New York Times, quote, we needed plausible deniability in case the arms got into the hands of al-Nusra. So one of the major reasons for the secrecy was that they knew the weapons would get into the hands of al-Qaeda. And that's why it had to be kept secret, uh, because otherwise it would make it more difficult to, uh, you know, uh, answer the fact that U.S. weapons are going right to al-Qaeda. So that was admitted, of course, after the fact. And John Kirby at the Pentagon said that it would be unacceptable if U.S. arms had fallen into the hands of these neo-Nazis. But yeah. just days before Kirby's statement, the State Department said that, that couldn't, it didn't happen. Here's a State Department skeptical that U.S. weapons were used in alleged Belgorod uprising. This mm -hmm. wasn't an uprising. These were <laughs> not organizations that came from Belgorod. Actually, residents were terrified. One civilian was killed. Many were injured and people were not happy about it there. The U.S. is skeptical, according to The Hill, that American-provided military equipment to Ukraine was used in an outbreak of fighting, the State Department said Tuesday, adding that Washington does not encourage or enable Ukraine to strike inside of Russia. 
Um, Matthew Miller is the State Department spokesman. And here's what he, he said that I, I love this quote. We don't have perfect clarity of the information. We're looking at the same fuzzy images on social media. <laughs> oh, because that is so the images funny. That's, they have every inch of Ukraine covered under surveillance. The U.S. can see everything. Uh, that was made clear from these Pentagon leaks that the U.S. is tapping, uh, you know, Ukrainian officials, including Zelensky. They know exactly what's going on. <laughs> Whenever something like this is inconvenient, oh, you know, it's unclear. We're just looking at social media. We don't know. Yeah, it's it's just it doesn't pass the laugh test. Yeah, uh, fuzzy images. Well, we I mean, you just if you're watching this, just look up. Look up the images right now. They're not very fuzzy. Uh, they're all over mainstream media. Um, so this is like the, the most pathetic attempt at skirting the fact that the U.S. has been not just supplying, but training neo-Nazis. There are plentiful photos of, the, of U.S. and Canadian officers inside NATO training bases going back to 2017 with leadership of the Azov Battalion. But of course, now they're not Nazis anymore. They're defenders. So this is the more disturbing aspect, I thought, of Matthew Miller's comments. He said, when we, while we don't encourage or enable attacks outside Ukraine's borders, we'll leave it to our Ukrainian partners on how to conduct this war. So basically, we don't stop them either from attacking inside Russia, these neo-Nazis. And that's the same thing that Tony Blinken said when asked, uh, I think it was by David Ignatius on Press Freedom Day uh, about uh, the Kremlin, the attempt to assassinate Vladimir Putin with a drone attack on the Kremlin. So this is the kind of rhetoric we're getting from the official spokesperson of the State Department after a neo-Nazi raid, cross-border raid, sponsored by Ukraine's government. And just going back to what you mentioned, this was the gray zone back, this is you back in 2018. The U.S. Yeah. is arming and assisting neo-Nazis in Ukraine while Congress debates prohibition. So, um, and- uh, Yeah, and that, you can see uh, in some of those photos, well, that, that's a U.S. rocket launcher. Shoulder, that old, old, it's a U.S. rocket launcher. Uh, it's like the PSIL one. Um, but you can see if you just stop it right there, I mean, this, these are, you know, circled. You can see the Azov flag here and the U.S. flag. This is a U.S. officer. And um, Denis Prokopenko, who is the official military head of the Azov Battalion, the person who was put in place of uh, Andrei Boletsky until Boletsky returned recently. Prokopenko was a part of that training session with U.S. and Canadian officers. Boletsky was recently quoted in the New York Times as just some military person. Didn't even mention that he's a Nazi. He's just some, oh, he happens to be a Ukrainian military officer. Didn't mention who he actually is. I mean, just the normalization of uh, neo-Nazis. No one has done it more than liberal media outlets like the Times. It just, it's off the charts. He's just a patriot. or he's a, you know, he's a Ukrainian activist. Didn't they call him an activist? <laughs> I'll, I'll double check that's uh yeah well i i understand from 
the leader of the Russian Volunteer Corps who gave this press conference, Denis Nikitin. Um, and he's not not to be confused with the patch uh, that he said to expect more cross border raids. And this appears to be a tactic that it, it, it betrays desperation, along with all the terrorist attacks being carried out by dubious elements backed by the Ukrainian SBU inside Russia against writers and intellectuals who support the Russian war effort. It suggests there isn't a whole lot of progress on the battlefield. Uh, here, I found that quote about Boletsky it's from the New York Times. It's really interesting. First of all, the, the word we got about Boletsky was that he was done. He left the Azov Battalion. He wasn't involved anymore. And this was right. presented as proof that they're no longer Nazis. And then we find out that he actually was leading the Azov in the fight in Bakhmut, right? So this guy's playing a com you know operational role as a commander in this huge battle. So, okay, so much for that cover story. But this is how now the Times describes uh, Boletsky uh, in, its, in, in its piece. Let me show it to you. Uh, this is a new one. Um, they say this. Uh, the fight in, in Bakhmut is led by Boletsky, a former ultra-nationalist politician and founder of the Azov Regiment. No mention, of course, that these are Nazis. A group that was part of Ukraine's National Guard before the war and is now integrated into the country's military forces with little or no political bent. He's a former ultra-nationalist. It's like, <laughs> you know, he's reformed now. He's apologized. He's gone to um, Ibrahim X. Kendi uh, racial sensitivity workshops. Uh, he's done the, the you know, the, the privilege walk. <laughs> and now he's a former ultra-nationalist. Former ultra-nationalist, yeah. Former, former ultra-nationalist, just like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no need to say anything more. And now there's no more political bent at all. Nothing more to see here. This is the guy who said that fine. the goal of Azov was to, uh, the mission of Azov was to destroy the uh, Semite-led Untermenschen and lead yes. the white Christian races in yeah. to victory. This is a, he snapped you know, out of it. He snapped out of it. It's former. Doesn't feel that way anymore. And yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the drone strike on the Kremlin again. This is another thing where it just. A little time passes and the story shifts quickly and everybody moves on. This is from the New York Times. Breaking news, the recent Kremlin drone attack was likely orchestrated by one of Ukraine's special military or intelligence units, U.S. officials said. It was unclear if Ukraine's top officials were aware. Yeah, right. But the point is, when this first happened, what did the media tell us? What did experts tell us? This was a Kremlin false flag. So, you know. The Timothy Snyder, yeah. the... Yale court historian of the Ukraine proxy war said this is a, a Russian false flag. Uh, who else? Uh, was it Jack Keane of the Institute for the Study of War, the, the, study of the, war Kagan the Kagan family think tank? Uh, he said that uh, Robert O'Brien, the former Trump national security advisor, they all said this is the hallmarks of a Russian false flag. But again, that's like it's old news now. There's only a few weeks ago. Now, okay, now we could admit, it. oh, yeah, Ukraine carried this out, but let's move on. Um, Moving right along, and you know, this couldn't have any possible consequences for Ukraine's military and political leadership when it's confirmed now that Ukraine attempted to assassinate the Russian president. When the deputy intelligence chief of Ukraine says their goal is to assassinate the Russian president, this couldn't have any possible consequences for Ukraine yeah. political leadership. Yeah. So uh, I, I think we should, you know, 
you should you should intro the next segment. Okay, well, um, we've been hearing for months from U.S. officials that they don't really know what Ukraine's plans are because Ukraine doesn't share with the U.S. their operational plans. So U.S. has very little insight into what Ukraine plans to do and it's counteroffensive. Well, someone who just blew up that talking point is one of the top neocons in government and one of the people most responsible for this proxy war inside the Biden administration, Victoria Nuland. And even as you plan for the counteroffensive, which we have been working on with you for some four or five months, we are already beginning our discussions uh, with the Ukrainian government and with friends in Kyiv, both in the civilian side and on the military side, about Ukraine's long-term future. And Let's hear that one more time. Even as you plan for the counteroffensive, which we have been working on with you for some four or five months. So there we go. That's Victoria Nuland admitting that, oh, yeah, uh, we've been working with you, the Ukrainians, on this counteroffensive for four to five months. And during this period, you know, there's so many headlines that you'll get um, from, you know, sourced U.S. officials saying that we don't know what Ukraine's doing. They're withholding details. And Newland just blurted out the truth, which is that, of course, because this is a proxy war, the U.S. has been actively planning this counteroffensive with Ukraine. And this is the Kiev or Kiev security conference modeled after the Munich security conference. And she she comes in on a big screen looking like Big Brother. <laughs> she, and she really is the boss of the show. She is a literal boss lady of the Ukrainian U.S. fiefdom and this proxy war. Uh, she wanted to take credit for the counteroffensive, at least. I mean, why wouldn't she? Yep. 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 And, and so where, where is it? We were constantly told the spring counteroffensive would take place. It was floated that it would begin on April 30th, which was the day that Hitler died. Um, maybe not the best day, especially if it's going to fail. Uh, yeah. We're still seeing no signs of it yet. It was reported by the Institute for the Study of War, which is managed by Iran and uh, was founded by the sister of Victoria Newland's husband, Robert Kagan. His sister is Kimberly Kagan, that Ukrainian troops had advanced across the Dnipro River. This was then reported in the Wall Street Journal and every other legacy publication in the US, and it turned out to be totally false. And Bakhmut fell a few weeks later. This was another edition of Gray Zone Radio. I've been your host, Max Blumenthal. To sign up for our newsletter and read more of our original investigative reporting, visit thegrayzone.com. That's the G-R-A-Y zone.com. This episode was produced by Christopher Weaver.